Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk's executive producer, Rob Perra. Today on Food Talk, Carlotta Mast joins Danny to talk about her role as VP of content and the market leader for the New Hope Network and how the natural products industry is adapting to market disruptions caused by COVID-19. Later, Danny talks to Russell Diaz-Canseco, president and CEO of Vital Farms, about the benefits of ethically raised eggs, climate change in the pasture belt, and a conscious capitalism business model. Enjoy the show. So our guest today is Carlotta Mast from the New Hope Network. And I was supposed to see her and and a lot of other people I really like and admire at um, the Natural uh, uh, Product Expo East. We we call it, sorry, we call it Expo West in March. So I was supposed to see her in Anaheim. Every year this happens. Most years I get to go and you know, see all these amazing products, you know, talk to the folks at Dr. Bronner's who I really like see and eat and, and, you know, just, uh, uh, have a really good time of learning more about the, all the natural products that are out there, meet a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of startups, et cetera. This was one of the first, this is kind of when I knew personally that COVID was a bigger deal than maybe I thought it was because it was one of the first um, big, really big events that was canceled. Um, uh, And it was canceled sort of just days before everyone was planning to be there. Um, Companies from all over the world were planning to have booths. It was just a real disappointment. A a lot of companies um, and startups spend you know, a lot of time and energy and obviously, you know, funding to to get their products seen at Expo West as, as well as Expo East, which happens in, in the fall uh, that it will be, it was supposed to be in Philly this year. It's already been canceled. So it was a huge disappointment for all these companies who are trying to, you know, do the right thing, have natural, organic, uh, sustainable, regenerative products. And, you know, we, the, one of the, the things I like about it most is that there's also a lot of content around it. It's not just, you know, viewing products. It's really listening to experts. And I was going to be moderating a panel about bringing agrobiodiversity to your dinner table, um, which was uh, part of the work that I and many others, including the Lexicon of Sustainability, have been doing as part of the Google Food Lab. So that was a huge disappointment. We turned um, that that series, that uh, event, though, that we were supposed to have on agrobiodiversity into a series of podcasts that we released the first um, uh, episode last weekend, and we'll be releasing them every weekend. So um, we, you know, we made lemonade out of lemons, so to speak. But Carlotta is is one of those people who really makes sure that. The, the voices of a lot of folks are heard at these events, and she has a real knack for bringing different voices together. And she's one of those people, I, I haven't spent much time with her over the years. She first invited me to um, uh, one of the, the uh, great events she puts on called uh, es- Escabona, which means good food. And that was an amazing event in Austin. I believe it was in Austin, right, Carlotta? <laughs> yeah, a few years ago. <laughs> and um, just, you know, bringing farmers and business and, you know, advocates like myself together and, and really having blunt conversations about how, how to improve the food movement and how to improve the food system. So, Carlotta, I'm so glad you're here. I, I will just uh, introduce you, you uh, very quickly. You are the vice president of content and market leader of the New Hope Network. You're also a co-founder of the Jedi Collaborative. You are a recognized expert in natural products and health and wellness. Um, you've been the senior director of content and insights at New Hope uh, New Hope Natural Media. You oversee Natural Foods Merchandiser, NewHope360.com, Functional Ingredients, Nutrition Business Journal, and New Hope's Consumer Content uh, uh, Portfolio. You're also the content director for Next Natural Products Accelerator, a digital platform designed to help entrepreneurs entrepreneurs launch and really grow their natural products businesses. So you've really been a leader in this space and and really uh, helping entrepreneurs get off the ground. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. We're really excited. Thank you. Um, So it was pretty disappointing that both um, Expo West and Expo East have been have had to be postponed. And I know you're looking to do a lot more um, online uh, uh, events. Can you talk a little bit about 
you know, sort of what you went through in March. I know it was very stressful and there was a lot going on, um, but that's such a big event. And it because it happens, you know, every year, it, it does bring so many people together and, and gives those entrepreneurs a real opportunity to showcase their products. Yes, it was. It was a truly surreal experience. And like you, I definitely, that was when I understood that COVID was something very, very different than I um, knew it to be. We'd been paying attention to COVID, obviously. Um, we were, we always, we partner with BioFoc um, in, in Europe and attend the BioFoc show in February. So we started, you know, we're thinking about it um, at the time of traveling to that show and, you know, wondering if it would disrupt, but, you know, that show went on without, without a hitch. And so it was pretty surreal. We didn't start to see the cancellations due to COVID for Expo West until just a few days before okay. before the show. You know, the show was set to start on Tuesday. Our team typically travels out either a week in advance or, or the weekend before. So, you know, it was getting very, very close to having all of the team depart for the show. And that's when we started to see some of the large companies cancel, mostly due to travel restrictions that their corporate parents were putting um, right. into place. And and then that just absolutely snowballed. And during that time, we were, we were talking with uh, local authorities, state authorities, right. um, even had some communication with the governor about um, all of the all of the things that were in place to allow us to have a, a safe and healthy show, and everybody felt very very comfortable with us moving forward. But the community I certainly, did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was excited, and and that's why it probably felt a little bit like whiplash that we you know we were getting there were strong voices on wanting to cancel and strong voices on let's let's proceed. We'll be. We'll be safe, but you know, as that those voices tipped into more folks thinking, you know, I'm just not going to risk it. We still didn't yeah. know that much about COVID at that point. Right. We we listened to that and took it very seriously and made the really tough decision to cancel the Monday before the show was set set to yeah. take place. And we know it was extremely disruptive to brands and, and disappointing to brands and retailers. You know, some were already in Anaheim. Our international exhibitors had flown a long way to get there. And so we understood it was disruptive. But now that we have seen, we know more about COVID and we see what happened with some of these super spreader events right. in other parts of the country or the world, we we absolutely know it was the right decision, a super hard decision, but the right one to cancel and that it probably prevented um, people from getting sick. No, and I, I absolutely think it was the right decision. And you're right, you didn't want to be part of a super spreader event. I think South by Southwest, which was right after Expo West, they looked at what happened in, in, in Anaheim and made a similar decision. And I think that that was also very wise. So it's it, it, those things are hard. And I know you've you've worked really hard to help all of the entrepreneurs and 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 companies who are planning to go in in different ways. So in trying to get their their products out and and their awareness out uh, in different ways, and also help them financially, which I think also was very generous to to do. So thank you for that. I know these are very hard decisions, and but they're the right ones, and we we know that now with with everything that's happened over the last four months. So, um, I you know I, I want to shift gears a little bit, and you've been you know working in the natural products industry for for a while now, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes. What what has been sort of you know the most exciting or interesting or uh, you know change that you couldn't have uh, predicted over the last you know maybe ten or fifteen years? There have been so many positive changes. I think when I, I started tracking and working in the industry about 13 years ago, and at that time, we were, the industry was still considered very niche, a fad only for kind of the, you know, the sort of cutting edge of people who really were paying attention to the importance of food and what you put in your body and on your body. And at that time, the industry the, the entire U.S. natural and organic products industry was less than a hundred billion dollars in sales. So really just very, it really was niche at that time. The large food companies weren't paying that much attention and it was easy to brush off this industry. Um, even though it was already a hundred billion dollars in sales, we are now on track to surpass $250 billion in sales next year. And so it's that tipping into the mainstream that is a huge 
I think, driver because the, you know, we know that this industry is is about more than just selling products. It really is about addressing big um, challenges and opportunities in our world related to um, providing healthier products, cleaner products, supporting organic and regenerative agriculture, um, helping people be more mindful about what they put in and on their bodies, paying attention to nutrition, paying attention to, um, you know, the ingredients in products, the amount of sugar, sodium. It's it's really just, I think, helping to, to create a more mindful um, consumer base. And so I'm excited to see that that has moved mainstream. And I'm, I'm very uh, optimistic about how the industry many, many brands within the industry are then wanting to take that to the next level, really focus on creating greater accessibility um, with our products, addressing the systemic racism that is involved in the food system, trying to create more um, a more just and equitable food system, trying to address climate change and all of the ways that food and agriculture can either um, help to uh, advance climate change or actually be a solution to climate change and, you know, more sustainable packaging. I think our packaging is the Achilles heel of the CPG industry. Um, So it's it's, when I meet some of these really innovative mission-driven entrepreneurs, the ones who come to Expo, the ones that we missed out on being with and learning from um, in March, that's what gets me excited. And I guess it doesn't surprise me that's happening, but I'm very, very excited about the momentum that seems to be kind of behind this industry. Right. And I think there's a lot of momentum, especially right now with COVID. I think this is one of those those things coming out of COVID. Organic sales are up. I'm sure natural products sales are up. Do you think that, you know, you're already on the natural products industry is already on track to to be over 250 billion next year? Do you think that it will be even more than that because people are more concerned about what they're putting in their bodies as a result of COVID and, you know, greater immunity benefits from eating organic or regeneratively produced food? I do. That $250 billion estimate we put together before the impact of COVID and, you know, just one category in particular, dietary supplements that, you know, that you were talking about immunity supplements, the entire supplement industry has typically been growing between, you know, five and 6% a year um, for the past several years. And we're anticipating more than 12% growth for that category alone this year, which is pretty amazing given that you have, that's a $50 billion category. So when you start getting that sizable to have 12% growth is is pretty phenomenal. And I believe that a lot of that growth will be sustained as people do prioritize health. We did a consumer survey in April to try to understand how COVID was impacting the way consumers think, or and I don't like the word consumers, the way people are thinking about um, their own health and the health of the environment. And what we found is that 77% of the thousand um, people that we surveyed were saying that they believe that their own, prioritizing their own personal health is more important today than it was a year ago. And 67% said prioritizing environmental health is more important today than it was a year ago. So it's one survey, but I do think it gives us a snapshot into the way um, people are shifting their attitudes and um, beliefs about the importance of health and wellness and, and also what it means to take care of our planet. And, you know, for the long term. So I think that will bode well for this, for the natural products industry. Yeah, I was thinking about this yesterday during another interview, how in a way that climate change couldn't mobilize folks to really change or care about the environment in different ways. I feel like COVID has had a real impact on how people view, again, what you said, their their own health and the health of the planet. And that's really encouraging. Again, the, there's a lot of tragedy going on, right? You know, this is an awful, awful virus that has, um, you know, not only killed so many people, but, you know, torn apart families, forced people to move. It's it's devastating. There's so many people out of, of work. But I think there are these bright spots that we can pull from this. And maybe that that is a big one. You know, the the more awareness, greater, greater concern about how we treat the planet, how we treat ourselves. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think it um I think it helps to make the connection between are the the health of the planet and then our own health. I I'm a big fan of Dr. Zach Bush and and some of the um, 
the work and 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 research he's done that that makes those connections as it connects to our microbiome and so that feels really important and it's also illustrated um the the extreme disparities in health amongst different communities and people Absolutely. and for our industry that is something that we we've talked about and we've prioritized in some way but not not a, not enough and so i think this this whole situation helps us all to look at, you know, those disparities are in our face and we, we, I believe we're the kind of community that knows that it has to be addressed and we'll find innovative approaches. I'm working with, with those communities and, and with others to, to address some things that have been kind of lurking in the background for us for a while. Absolutely. And I, I am so glad you're bringing up this issue because I think it's important. We were on a call together uh, last week where, you know, someone brought up the idea that Expo West is just, you know, it's it's one of the whitest places they've ever been. And, it, you know, it, it takes some, you know, uh, we, we all have to look inside ourselves and sort of open our eyes and realize that that needs to change, that there are so many great entrepreneurs, you know, from uh, uh, the Black and Indigenous people of color, those communities who are doing incredible things. And we, we know, we all know so many of them because we're connected in, in the food movement. But the fact that they're not often at these sorts of trade shows or they don't get the opportunity to get funding um, from accelerators, that's a real, real problem. And, and I, I know so many people are working to change that, but I'm wondering if you can maybe address that a little bit more. Absolutely. And I will share a stat with you because um, as part of, so um, as a, a co-founder of the Jedi Collaborative, which was created um, by uh, Lara Dickinson from OSC Squared and Cheryl O'Loughlin, um, formerly from Rebel and, and Cliff Bar. We wanted to just understand the baseline of where we were in terms of the demographic makeup of leadership um, within the natural products industry. And what we found is that the industry leadership is predominantly white and it's predominantly male. Um, 84% of CEOs and industry leaders from a benchmarking survey that we did at the end of 2019, 84% of, of industry leaders are white. Um, and, and it's 81% of board members, of, of company wow. board members are white. 57% um, are men. Of the, of the company leadership and then board leadership is 68% male. So that's not reflective of the general community that we want to serve. Um, right. you know, some, we have amazing leadership that have helped to create this industry and we now have an opportunity to bring in new perspectives and, and really diversify our leadership. So the Jedi Collaborative was created to, to, to do just that, to, create a, a commitment framework that allows companies to um, bring more justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion to the industry in, in three areas, the area of culture, how, you know, what our companies look like, the area of consumer, as we think about who are our consumers that we're targeting. Many brands, if you'll talk to them, a lot of times they're not thinking about the, the, the black indigenous people of color communities as right. a target market. They're, they're really kind of bypassing that community altogether. And then the area of community, how we are looking at our supply chains and, and ensuring that there's Jedi across all the things that we do. So that's an important um, component of, of, I think, providing a framework for action for the industry mm -hmm. to start addressing these things. Um, a project of, Jedi Collaborative is a project of OSC Squared, and then one of the projects we have through the Jedi Collaborative is the Women on Boards Project, mm. which is specifically focused on helping to get more more women, and particularly women of color, on industry boards. Because as the stats show, we have a lot of work to do there, and I think it would it will benefit everyone. It will Absolutely. allow companies to be able to um, just be in a better position to to serve. Um, all consumers, all all people, and have the understanding and background to do that in a relevant and um, authentic way. So that's Absolutely. that's one aspect. Absolutely. No, I think it's so important. And that work to get folks on boards, especially, I think that's something to to really strive for and 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 also be proud of that, you know, that that's a real ambitious goal. And I think it will take a lot to get there. 
but it's also something that's so needed. And having those different voices literally at the table to make industry decisions around this is is, is great. Um, I, I want to go back a little bit to, to COVID-19 and, and how, you know, when you're helping and, you know, when there's a need for helping entrepreneurs to get off the ground, I feel like COVID is going to, you know, dampen some of the innovation in, in the natural food industry. How do we, how do we get that momentum back? And how do we also make it more inclusive as we were talking about before? Absolutely. I mean, that's been one of my concerns as well. We saw, you know, it was to a much lesser extent, but the recession in 2008, 2009, it definitely impacted um, the amount of innovation and, and just sort of the, the landscape and ecosystem that entrepreneurs were launching into. And so for me, I agree that that is a concern. And at New Hope, one of the things we're, we're working on because, um, serving these companies, these brands, helping them get launched, helping them grow, helping them achieve their missions really is, is our mission at New Hope. Right. And, and we know that the, the trade shows, they are an, a component of the ecosystem that is primarily, um, that is, is probably most beneficial and helpful to those early stage brands because it's how they get into the marketplace, how they reach retailers and start growing their distribution. It's how they meet the partners and investors and others who will take them to the next step of their, their journey. And so canceling those shows is a, is a big impact. And we also know that the costs of the shows can be significant for these, these young companies. So we're launching a new initiative called Spark Change that will replace the, the in-person trade shows in 2020 because we've already, as you noted, um, we've determined that we can't move forward with Expo East for all of the, the reasons that we've talked about, but we also don't want to leave a vacuum in, in the ecosystem through right. the completion of these shows. So Spark Change will be, um, a four month long, uh, digital events journey focused on product innovation, learning and, um, community connections and networking, all the things that people get from trade shows. And it will be, um, it will be a much more affordable and accessible way for companies to showcase who they are, tell the stories behind their products, um, share their mission with retailers and distributors and others. Um, but not just do it over a couple of days, but be able to have a prolonged exposure to these retailers and a, a, a longer platform to really, you know, tell us who they are and, and why they stand out. And one of the things we're doing is, really leaning into using that platform to particularly elevate um, uh, the the brands that are coming from women and people of color from some of the um, entrepreneurial communities that have that are not as well represented when you walk through the the trade show right. floor of, of expo so we're we're deep in the planning for that but that's that's an area that i'm I'm hoping can help create a, an elevated platform for some of these brands to get the retail distribution. It's been wonderful to see more retailers wanting to feature those, those brands on their shelves, investors that I think are, are looking with, um, you know, kind of more excitement and, and, and enthusiasm in, in terms of, of supporting those, those companies. So this will just be another tool, I hope, that will help to um, elevate these entrepreneurs and, and really help them on, on their journey as they launch and grow in the industry. Yeah, I think that's really exciting because I think often what happens at Expo West or Expo East is, you know, people get like 30 seconds. It's like an elevator pitch and allowing the story to sort of unfold, especially for, you know, women and and Black, Indigenous, people of color communities. I think getting that sort of more... Um, more of more, uh, more airtime, if you will, to really go through how they do this. I think that's really going to be advantageous. I guess the thing is, you can't really sample the products. That's often how you get people is by sampling the products. But I, you know, uh, I'm sure there are, there are ways around that. But it's that storytelling component that I think is, is, is so important. And I think as as we as we get through COVID, I think people are really looking for more transparency. So really being able to, to hear those stories from the entrepreneurs themselves is, is really valuable. And also sort of 
understanding that the journey that this, you know, I think people think all of these companies sort of come in, you know, with, with lots of funding, but often these are, are products that people start cooking in their own kitchens and then figure out how to get a market for, and then start using, you know, uh, community kitchens and that kind of thing that these are, you know, this is not easy to develop a new product, especially as a, as a young entrepreneur or as a person of color, this is a, a real journey, as you said. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we, um, just to your sampling point, we will provide lots of opportunities for vi- virtual sampling. And I'm excited about how some of these products from um, diverse entrepreneurs will be able to reach retailers who wouldn't have known about them otherwise. But but I agree. And I think what, you know, as I've gotten to know um, various entrepreneurs from the BIPOC community, it's been it's been really amazing to hear what their missions are, you know, that this goes beyond launching a product and hoping for a quick exit down the road. Like a lot of times this, their missions about helping to transform um, their communities and address a big challenge. And so I also think that as we, you know, one of the things I'm very focused on at New Hope in our education and just the support we provide is that we're really leaning in to what those entrepreneurs need. I think we've done a great job of helping entrepreneurs down kind of the typical, um, road toward launching and growing and and taking on private equity money and moving yourself to an exit. Like we've definitely supported that journey very well as an industry, but it's not the only journey and it's not the only, um, it's it's not the right journey for everyone. And it's exciting to see entrepreneurs who are looking to create long-term entities that will not only bring great products into the market, but really help to transform their own lives, their families' lives, their communities' lives. And and I think there's a lot more that we as an industry could do to really rally around that approach to business in our industry as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I want to go back to what you said about sort of packaging. And we've seen so much disposable packaging because of COVID, you know, restaurants that are, you know, serving takeout or, you know, reopening, they're using a lot of disposables. What's your advice to new entrepreneurs as they're thinking about how to package their products? I mean, there's things like edible packaging, there's compostable packaging. There are all these things that I'm sure are being developed right now that I don't even, I'm not aware of. What, what is your advice on this packaging element, especially in the age of COVID and post-COVID? I mean, this is probably not the only, uh, you know, global health crisis that we're going to face as a result of a virus, you know, and I think companies will need to be prepared, you know, uh, a lot more than they were maybe, you know, before, before uh, COVID? It's a good question. And I think that's been one of the, um, a lot with the long list of distressing aspects of COVID is just the, how, you know, the impact on, on behavior that we were, we're finally beginning to shift in terms of right. bringing reusable bags to the store and um, not expecting everything to be um, individually packaged. We were starting to see some reusable packaging and of course bulk, um, bulk retail is a big important part of the natural channel and um, natural channel retailers. But I think for, for brands, what I would do, there's also the bright side of this is there's some really good innovation that is being developed out there. And there's some amazing brains that are putting um, right. their brain power toward this challenge of creating um, more sustainable packaging and packaging that also reduces um uh, the need for single use packaging. It's a plastic issue, but it's really a single use packaging issue. I'm mm-hmm. a huge fan of what um, Loop is doing. So Tom Zaki and his Loop model and, and the reusable uh, packaging. But I also would, I think that the work that OSC Squared is doing around packaging with the Sustainable Packaging Coalition, that um, if I had a brand, that would be a group that I'd want to participate in and support because the innovations that come out of that group can benefit everyone. It's truly a collaborative approach um, towards solving the packaging challenge that we have as an industry. So I've seen more movement pre-COVID on, you know, truly getting some um, sustainable innovations into the marketplace in, in the last year or two years than I certainly saw before. We talked a lot about it before, but we're finally seeing real innovations um, coming to bear. Right. Yeah, it's really exciting. Um, so before I ask my last question, I'm hoping you can tell people where they can find out more about you. Oh, about me. Um, probably uh, LinkedIn. That might be 
the the best place. Sure. Do you want to give the the website to New Hope as well? Oh, sure. And then of course, New Hope is just newhope.com and we'll be we'll be launching our Spark Change website in the next couple of weeks. So I'm excited. I'm, you know, really excited for people to check that out and, and send their ideas because this will be, this will be, you know, we're not planning on this to end in 2020. We're hoping that this becomes a, an important part of our future platform. Um, and we want to co-create it with the community just the way we really co-created Expo with the community. Retailers were part of it. Brands were part of it. And it started in a very, very small group of people. And now, you know, we were anticipating close to 90,000 for our Expo West show. So we want to co-create something that benefits the community the way we co-created Expo West. Absolutely. So we talked about how COVID might be dampening or tempering some of the innovation that's been going on in the natural food products world. But I also feel like there are some secret entrepreneurs who have used this time of COVID, you know, experimenting in their kitchens or their garages or, you know, barns maybe, and and really come up with innovative products. What's your advice to them for these folks who've had really interesting ideas because they've been locked down and in quarantine and are, you know, maybe out of boredom and out of of necessity, they've come up with something really creative? I think my advice would, even though you're, we, we're not in an environment where we can go and physically network with people, um, I think go, go meet other entrepreneurs and people, um, in the natural products community. I think the natural products community is one of the most collaborative and open communities that I've ever experienced in business. And, and I, we adhere to a concept of a rising tide lifts all boats. So there's a level of generosity that I, I've never experienced and, I'm um, the, the past board chair for Naturally Boulder and helping to launch the Naturally Network. So we have affiliates in Austin, Chicago, San Diego, the Bay Area, soon New York, soon L.A. If you, you know, even if you're not in one of those communities, start going to these events, some of these Naturally events. Um, right. It's a great way to meet other other entrepreneurs, other leaders, and and you find your community of people who cheer you on, help you address challenges, and you realize you're not in it alone. And because as entrepreneurs, um, and you know this, Danny, there's really good days and there's really low days where you're not <laughs> sure you're going to be able to make it to the next day. And so finding your community of people and supporters, I think, is the most important thing you could do, especially at the early stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, that's why I admire you so much because you're very inclusive. You do bring people together. You've been, you know, I, I you didn't know me and you invited me to Escabona. And so I, it's just been such a pleasure to sort of be in, in your, in your network and, and learn a lot from you. So thank you for, for all that you've been doing and all that you will do. I'm really excited for the Spark series. Um, And I I just want to thank you so much for joining me today. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And I hope folks will join me on our next episode when I'll be talking uh, to Russell Diaz-Canseco, the president and CEO of Vital Farms. Thanks so much, Carlotta. Please stay well. And I hope I do get to see you soon in person. Thank you. So today I get to chat with Russell Diaz-Canseco, the CEO and president of Vital Farms. The company is the largest pasture-raised egg brand in the United States and a certified B Corps. They have experienced a significant increase in sales uh, during COVID-19, but they are also doing incredible work around animal welfare, the environment, climate change, and and all the things that you sort of want from, uh, uh, you know, want agriculture to be both environmentally, socially, and economically sustainable. So Russell, I'm so glad you could join us today from Austin, Texas, um, and, and, and be with us on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So I kind of want to dive right in. I mean, we, you know, obviously uh, COVID-19 caused a lot of disruption in, in, in the food system and in, in supply chains, but Vital Farm saw a, an increase. And you said in April that the company had laid off no one. And so now we're in June. And I'm wondering if, if things have changed and uh, because of the progression of the virus or how are things now? Thanks so much for that. So first of all, um, we continue to uh, do a lot to protect our people. We, we realize that while economies are opening back up, 
um, and maybe the shelves at the grocery store are better stocked than they were back in March, yeah. the virus is still as real as ever. And so um, we're, we're uh, thankful that so far we have no confirmed cases of COVID amongst our crew members, either in Austin or at our egg packing facility in Springfield, Missouri, which is where a lot of the action happens. Um, in terms of kind of order levels or demand, um, we're still seeing um, a lift in demand above what we were experiencing before COVID hit. And I think that's reflective of a lot of people still um, quarantining at home or at least eating more of their food at home. Um, but it's right. not nearly at, at, the, at the level it was back in, back in March and April when, when things were really, um, were really going a little crazy at the grocery store. Absolutely. And um, how many workers are, are we talking about? Either, you know, the folks raising the eggs, the, raising the chickens that raise the eggs, and the folks at, at the packing facility in Springfield, Missouri. I'm from Missouri, so I, I like to oh, know, cool. you know, how, how my people are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, and we, we uh, built our first and only uh, full-size egg packing plant in Springfield back in 2017. And we we love Springfield. We love being a part of Missouri. Um, so we've got um, about um, just under 100 employees, we call them crew members, in Missouri. Um, the majority of them work at our egg packing facility, but we also have several that support the farms with which we work by going out and, and visiting with them. Um, and, and so we, we operate round the clock, six days a week um, at our plant. Um, and uh, um, so that's, but, but on the farm side, we only work with small family farms. And so those are not our employees. We contract with them. Um, and we have uh, about 200 farms across eight states in our network. Um, and and I've, I'm not aware of any cases of COVID on those farms either, which is maybe one of the nice things about working on your own family farm. You don't right. have to work in, in a more concentrated environment. Yeah, I'm so glad that a lot, so many farmers have kept safe because of their, they're already kind of isolated, right? You know, and they, they work hard, they don't interact unless they're going to market or distributing uh, their their produce or their eggs or, or whatever else. So that that is good. I'm wondering, um, a lot of companies decided to institute what was, you know, called hazard pay or hero pay. Was Vital Farms part of the, that, you know, doing that kind of thing? Well, so the first thing we did was we, uh, did everything we could to make sure that it didn't feel hazardous to work here, right? So yeah. we had already designed our facility with um, a really great indoor environmental quality for our people. Um, our job stations are designed, were already designed to be you know, pretty safe. And uh, almost every job is already socially distant, right? So we didn't want to create a hazardous environment for which we then had to pay people to take a lot of risk. Yeah. Um, we did institute... Um, a higher uh, overtime pay because rather than hire new people to support increased volumes during the peak of COVID, we'd much prefer to just provide opportunities for our, our well-trained and loyal crew to make more money. And so sure. we continue to have uh, a higher overtime pay than normal. And we were already paying um, a, a living wage plus 25%. So our minimum wage uh, at, uh, in Springfield, Missouri, I believe it's $14 an hour today. And most of our people earn more than that. So um, that's what we did. That's fantastic. It sounds very fair. I, I, I asked because so many of those companies that initially, uh, you know, had hazard pay, you know, instituted at their, at their companies have taken it away now. And as you said at the beginning, the virus is, it hasn't gone away. It's Still there. even more, yeah. And it's probably more dangerous in, in so many ways than it was in March. So I feel like, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of companies that are not taking this, uh, they're not approaching this in a really socially responsible way. So it's glad, I'm glad to hear that, that it sounds like you all are. You, you've also chosen not to raise egg prices. And there, we've seen a lot, you know, especially at the beginning of this, what, you know, higher prices for things and because of increased demand, especially around animal products. But you chose not to do that. Yeah. So uh, what might be a little bit unique to our um kind of business, our approach to business, our standards um, for the way in which we do business go far beyond the sort of the, the look and feel of the eggs or, or even the way in which we treat the animals. And as a result, we, we can't and we don't buy eggs on the wholesale market because there's no egg that meets our standards. 
And so as a result, all of our eggs come from, con from farmers with whom we have exclusive contracts. We, they exclusively produce for us and we commit to buying everything they produce for a certain period of time. Um, and those, those uh, contracts have uh, prices that don't go up and down with the, with the broader egg market. We, we adjust prices for, for changes in feed prices so that the farmer isn't at risk if, if those prices change. Sure. But beyond that, our costs didn't change and we didn't uh, feel like it was the right time to opportunistically try to profit from the situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think consumers will remember that. They will remember that after COVID, that you weren't one of the companies that did, uh, you know, that price gouging or, or you know, really hurt consumers in, in ways. You, you mentioned that you work with uh, over 200 farms uh, across eight states. And so what does it take to be a, a farm that raises eggs for vital farms? You, you mentioned animal welfare. Can you talk about some of the sort of, you know, um, practices you have in place that make those, those farms meet your standards? Sure. Well, there's an awful lot to it. And, and we spend a lot of time um, interviewing and getting to know a prospective farmer before we'll uh, we'll start working with someone. Typically, that farmer is going to build a custom farm. For, for, to work with us. So uh, they typically would not have an existing egg farm, for example, um, because existing egg farms typically don't have all the features and benefits that we're looking for. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, many of the people we meet who have a lot of experience uh, producing eggs have learned such a different way of doing it from how right. we do it that it's just easier to start with someone who hasn't, doesn't have those preconceptions. Sure, interesting. Um, but a few examples, uh, first in terms of um, what the farm uh, itself might look like or where it might be based. So we're looking for farmers in an area of the country that we call the pasture belt. And the pasture belt is, the, is basically uh, the mid-south. And it, it, it's the combination of places in the country where it's warm enough so that animals can have outdoor access year-round. You don't want you know, a lot of snowy conditions in the winter, for example, and wet enough so that there's meaningful vegetation where um, for, for the birds to be able to exhibit their natural behaviors. So it, it, we'd love to be local in New York in the winter. We'd love to be local in sure. LA in the summer. The challenge is that we want to make sure that we're also being true to the standards that we're trying to uphold. Um, yeah. So the first step is you got to be kind of in the right zip code. Uh, but look, the good news is there are a lot of zip codes in that area. Um, the second is that we want the land on which you might build your farm to be really great for the birds too. So birds, we've learned over the years, we didn't always know this, but one of the things that um, free ranging or pasture raised birds want is they want some uh, protection from predators. So they want tree cover and they want wind breaks and that encourages them to spend more time outside and, and to uh, more and to, and to range further from the barn. So we're looking for not, uh, a cropland, but we're actually looking for forest edge so that mm -hmm. um, the birds can enjoy that that habitat. Um, we, we're, we're looking to avoid a lot of standing water because one of the issues with uh, outdoor access for birds is that um, uh, we want to protect them from any diseases that can be transmitted by migratory waterfowl and standing water tends to attract them. So there are a lot of things that go into the land itself. Um, but at least as important as getting the land right is getting the farmer right. And we want to make sure that, our, that the farmer is going to de deliver on their commitments. And we're going to want to make sure that they're, you know, they, they're willing to commit to a higher standard. Now, we, we pay better, we think, than most, in part because it's more work. Uh, but we'll do things like, um, you know, we'll do reference checks on a farmer. We'll mm. um, ask the feed mill, does this farmer kind of pay their bills on time? What's their reputation sure. in the area? Um, because we want to have a long-term relationship with somebody who's um, really going to be an important part of our system. But yeah, that, that all makes sense. And on the animal welfare side, what are you asking for? We have a vital farm standard, which um, you know, we have certainly documented, and we actually use a third party to audit to make sure that we're doing what we say. But mm -hmm. there are some third-party standards that uh, are incorporated in it, the, the most uh, well-known of which is the Certified Humane Standard for Pasture-Raised Egg Production. So the, the, that's, a, that's a great representation of, of many of our standards. But, but many of our customers, uh, most notably Whole Foods, have very um, expansive uh, standards and, and inspection programs to make sure that 
we're doing what we told them we would do. Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, everybody from, uh, you know, uh, organic certifiers to the state of California. So we have lots of different bodies inspecting our farms and it all rolls up to something um, that uh, is, we think, unique in the business as the vital farm standard. Great, great. You, you mentioned um, that you usually want to work with, you know, farmers who haven't raised chickens the conventional way you, because it's it, it might be hard to unlearn those practices. But I, I feel it's something I've been thinking about a little bit recently because of COVID is how many farmers, you know, because of, of you know, the, the conditions and in industrialized farming in, in this country, I, I think there's a real sort of um, opportunity to transform. And I think farmers who, you know, have seen prices drop, whether they're, you know, raising uh, chickens or, or eggs or, or raising other um, animals, you know, they've had a hard time. Conventional, you know, farmers have had a, a rough time this year. And I know uh, that companies like Nyman Ranch, they often work to help, you know, uh, Folks who, you know, have farmed uh, hogs in a conventional way, help them transition into sort of the Nyman way. And, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, is that something you're going to consider maybe further on as, as the company grows or expands, helping those farmers who want to get out of that industrialized system sort of make those changes? Sure. So where, where I think we can bridge that gap and where we do bridge that gap is that we, we almost exclusively work with experienced farmers and because our uh, type of egg production is pasture centric, we, we look for farmers that are already producing other kinds of animal proteins on mm -hmm. pasture. Mm -hmm. So we take a farmer who's already got some cattle or mm -hmm. a small dairy operation. Um, and, and typically we're able to add an additional source of income, not replace what they're already doing. Sure. Um, the reality is that, um, you know, as at least in my experience in eggs, as uh, the industry really concentrated from the 60s all the way through the 90s, um, the number of small family farms who have, uh, you know, more traditional egg producing uh, operations is actually pretty small, right? A lot of these, a lot of the egg laying birds in this country are on multi-million bird farms that are corporate owned and, and are staffed by employees. And so- yeah we're much more likely to find an existing farmer with some other animals who is an experienced farmer. And, and by the way, our business model for them is a complementary one to what they already have. So for example, right. you know, egg pay happens much more frequently and much more continuously throughout a year, whereas um, the pay from other kinds of animal husbandry might be less frequent. And so there's a nice uh, complement there in terms of how our business fits into what they might already be doing. And there are some environmental benefits from raising chickens along with other animals. Can you talk about that? We think so. You know, um, I, I came to this business uh, as recently as 2014 after reading Omnivore's Dilemma, which was a real foundational book in my learning about food systems. And, you know, you know the, the, the rotation on pasture that, that Joel Salatin describes in that book uh, is is top of mind for us as we think about how to continue to evolve and improve our farms. Some of our farms um, only have chickens rotating on that pasture, and some rotate other animals as well. Um, over time, as our uh, you know product portfolio may expand in the future, we might have opportunities to to even work with the farmers uh, to help choose which animals mm -hmm. get rotated. Mm -hmm. But right now, it's it's much more up to the farmer to think about the most productive way to use his or her land. Absolutely. So your company's different than a lot of other ones. And I mentioned at the outset that you're a certified B Corps. And, and I know you've talked about this idea of conscious capitalism. And, and I, you know, the, I, I think you bring kind of a unique approach to what an ethical business looks like. Can you talk about this, this idea of conscious capitalism and what it really means? You know, absolutely. I, um, so I uh, am a recovering uh, MBA student. I went to one of those fancy business schools. And at the time, I remember uh, having a debate at school about the role of the corporation. And on one side were most, mostly American students who said the role of the corporation is to maximize profits for shareholders. 
And on the other side were mostly the international students who said, no, the corporation has much more responsibility than just to the shareholders. There's a multiple stakeholder approach to the obligation of the firm. Yeah. And I, at the time, I, I didn't really believe it. I didn't get it. It, it didn't make sense to me. Um, and I have been lucky enough to join this place, which was founded um, with this uh, notion of conscious capitalism as a core tenet. So it was more than just, you know, mission, vision, values up on the wall. It was really the way that the place was founded and the way in which right. decisions were made. And, and once I saw it in action, it, it made so much sense to me. And I think uh, I, for me, the big unlock was that when you work to help make sure that what you're doing is sustainable for all of your stakeholders and stakeholders are everybody from your employees to your suppliers and your farmers, to the communities in which you operate, to your customers and consumers, and, and last but not least, your shareholders and owners. When you, when you operate to make sure that it's sustainable for everyone, it actually grows the pie, right? right? And I'll give you just a small example of that. We have uh, farmers who in past lives had worked for, had, had produced for other uh, poultry companies. Um, uh, as uh, uh, on on what they call integrator farmers, where the poultry company would own the chickens and the feed, and the farmer would just provide the farm and do the work. And and every one of those farmers had an experience working in what was called, I think, a tournament system of pay. That mm -hmm. basically you get you're a member of a group of farmers, and your performance is benchmarked against theirs. And the price per pound of the chicken that you raise is based in part on your performance as a farmer. And so the top performing farmer gets paid a lot more than the lowest performing farmer and the lowest performing farmer might not make any money that flock. What's interesting is, uh, is that it creates a level of competition between farmers, which can lead them to not want to help each other, right? right? Because if I help you, you might take money away from me. Right. Well, we, it wouldn't dawn upon us to do that. And in fact, it, quite the opposite. We work really hard to help ensure that not only do farmers have every incentive in the world to help each other out, but we even convene them quarterly in meetings so that they can share their best practices with each other. That's great. Well, in that sense, I think our farms overall perform better than they would otherwise. And so that makes the whole system work better. Yeah, and so this absolutely. notion of a stakeholder model, this notion of working with all of your stakeholders, whether it's the, again, the community, your customers, your, your, uh, your suppliers, the notion of treating them as partners in this thing, treating them respectfully, I think you just, it's so much better. You get better outcomes and frankly, it's a lot more fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you, you brought up a really important point about that idea of farmers sharing information rather than feeling in competition. That is what industrial agriculture has created. Farmers are in competition. They, they, then they keep things to themselves and they don't talk about it, you know, at the feed store or at the coffee shop. They, you know, they, they become sort of, um, you know, less uh, inclusive. And I think that's a really powerful thing to break down is having farmers share information. I mean, the, I've spent a lot of time in the global South and the best things come about when farmers are sharing information and, you know, communities, you know, are learning from one another. I, I'm wondering how this idea of conscious capitalism, given everything so, you know, so many inspiring things that have happened over the last several weeks with the uprisings and the powerful demonstrations and the call for an end to systemic racism and police brutality. How might uh, uh, this idea of conscious capitalism contribute to better, you know, uh, better equality, better uh, s social justice, those kinds of things? Great question. And certainly one that we've been working through over the last several weeks. I think first and foremost, when you're wired to be a conscious company and to know that uh, business has a higher purpose than just profits. I love, it, you know, John Mackey and Raj Sisodia wrote the book, Conscious Capitalism. And one of the very first, very visual comments they make in that book, which I still love, it, it says, um, a, a business does not exist to make money any more than a human exists to make blood. <laughs> it's not our purpose. And yet without it, we will cease to exist. Right. And so I like it just it really speaks to me. Um, but one of the ways in which I think, at least in our example, uh, 
being a conscious company helps us be wired to be a part of the solution to some of the uh, systemic racism and other issues that society is tackling is that we're, we're wired to listen, right? When you're wired to think about the outcomes for your other stakeholders, you're wired to hear what they want and what they need and what's on their mind and to be humble uh, and have a growth mindset around not having all the answers already, right? Yeah. So the, I mean, the first thing that we did was we paused. We saw a lot of companies come out with statements of support and we didn't see a lot of statements of action or commitment to, right. to, to tangible action, but we did see a lot of sort of support in the moment. And that didn't feel true to our values, which is we, we, we want to talk when we have something to say. And so right. we took a week and a half to really think through and talk to everybody from government officials to uh, our, our own employees um, to understand what it is that we could do maybe uniquely to, to help improve the situation. And in that week and a half, we started getting questions from our own employees, our crew members. Well, why haven't you spoken out yet? What's, the, what, what's our stand on this? What are we going to do to make a difference? Um, and, and so I think that was great evidence in and of itself that our crew members, our employees felt that they had a voice and a platform right. in which to advocate for something that they cared passionately about um, and felt, frankly, to hold their leadership accountable for doing something about it. And so it all starts there. Yeah. I think that listening point, I think, uh, you know, you saw so many, you're right. You saw so many of these companies come out with like, you know, kind of, um, I don't know. I don't even know the word, just sort of these statements that meant nothing. And, you know, it, it was, they thought it was the right thing to do and to show that, you know, they were support, but they, I don't even think they knew what they were supporting. So that's the kind of thing that where you have to listen to folks and really learn from them and then decide how to move forward. And, uh, you know, uh, I talk to a lot of companies, Russell, I mean, I talk to a lot of companies and a lot of CEOs and, 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 you know, this is such a different model than, than most. And I, I think it's, it's commendable. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that a lot of folks aren't doing. Do you, do you get uh, inquiries from other CEOs and other companies who, who want to learn more about how you've handled these kinds of situations? You know, I, I've been, I've had the privilege of being a part of a few different groups that uh, support the sharing of, of the, that kind of thinking. One is, um, it's been my privilege to get to participate in the Conscious Capitalism uh, conference series and specifically the CEO conferences. And they've been terrific in, in opening my eyes to ways that we can be better because we're yeah. far from, we're far from perfect. And I'd be the first to admit it. Um, and then I'm also involved with YPO, which is a network of business leaders. Um, and it provides a, a forum in which we can um, talk about how we're reacting or, or acting mm -hmm. on certain topics. And that's been a wonderful resource as well. Yeah, just as farmers can share information, so can companies. And I think having sort of that open forum and, and taking away the competitive part, because, I, you know, there, there's a lot of that, obviously, companies competing against one another. But, you know, learning best practices, that's something that Food Tank is very interested in. And, um, you know, that, that idea of how companies can talk to one another without feeling th that competition. I, I, I'm wondering, you know, I... I we're talking a lot about social justice and, and part of that is creating more accessibility and more affordability to the kinds of products that Vital Farms is producing, you know, uh, products that are good for the planet, that are nourishing, that, um, you know, provide workers with a, a more than a living wage. But it's hard for a lot of folks to be able to afford those kinds of products. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on better access and affordability to, to really good, safe, nutritious food. It's very frustrating uh, the, way, the way that our food system in this country has evolved over the last hundred years. And I understand the impulses uh, around, you know, wanting to uh, beat, that, beat back food inflation in the 70s when that was a real issue and um, probably felt like the most important issue at the time. Um, you know, the, the um, sort of the concentration of food production that occurred with, with technological advances coming out of World War II um, the reality is that uh, we spend a lot smaller percent of our incomes on food than we did 50 or 100 years ago. Right. And so our sense of what affordable is has changed a lot. We are wired to look for a much lower cost per calorie 
or cost per pound for our food than uh, maybe what it costs to, to produce food in a, in a really sustainable way, in a way that honors the, co- the contributions of employees and farmers and, and the environment. Um, you know, I studied economics at Berkeley uh, in the 90s, and I remember learning about externalities, this idea that, um, you know, because I'm a, I'm a capitalist, but I also learned that there are examples of market failure, one of which is that uh, the market typically underprices the costs of pollution. And so um, it's really hard to think about um, uh, producing food the way we do without recognizing the costs of doing it the right way. Uh, but one thing that we do to address the accessibility issue uh, is that we do a lot of donations, um, millions of eggs a year to a variety of food banks. And, and that's not you know, the only way to, to address it, but that's one way we try to. Absolutely. Has that, I'm sure that demand from the food banks has really increased for you all this year. Have you, have you made a bigger donations because of COVID? It's funny. Our, um, our ability to donate was in part impacted by our ability to, uh, you know, do so without, uh, you know, violating, um, you know, safety, safety sure. protocols. Right. But, um, but as restrictions have started to lift, we started to ship more eggs. In fact, um, I think just yesterday we were able to ship two two whole truckloads of eggs to a to a food bank in uh, in the Charlotte area, um, and uh, and so yeah, I think you'll see us continuing to lean in on that um, on that in that area. In fact, we made a commitment. One of the very specific actions that we committed to with our crew members uh, was that we we would donate at least a million dollars worth of eggs this year to yeah. food banks that serve. Um, large uh, populations of of black families. Um, that was part of one of the ways that we, as a food company that's trying to make the the world better through food, could contribute in a meaningful way. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I guess I think you know because you're you're approaching business in, in such a different way. What kind of pushback have you gotten? What kind of criticism? You know, it's funny, I, none to my face, but, um, but I certainly read, you know, last year, the, uh, there was a big business organization. I think it's called the, the round, Business Roundtable. It's a group of big company CEOs. And they came out with a statement that basically said the future of business is, is a stakeholder model and not a shareholder model, essentially endorsing this thing that we've always believed. Um, and and the, the, the pushback that I read that I read in, in news articles responding to that assertion was similar to maybe what I thought when I was in business school, which is, look, the goal of the corporation is to maximize profits and shareholder value. And if the shareholders want to give that money to charity, so be it. And, and, and in, inherent in that worldview is this sense of there's a fixed pie. There's only so much money to go around. And if you're giving it away to your stakeholders, then you haven't done your job by getting it to the shareholders. And again, I'll just go back to the sense of, you know, I, I feel like we at Vital Farms really have adopted more of a growth mindset and this idea that we actually get to better outcomes when we operate in a different way. And, um, and I think the proof so far, at least, has been in our growth and in, and in the success for all of our stakeholders. And so we're just going to keep on doing what we're doing. Interesting. Great. So before I ask the final question, I want to make sure folks know how to find out more information about Vital Farms. They can go to vitalfarms.com. So Russell, I typically ask everyone the same last question, and especially during this you know, really uncertain time because of the pandemic and, and all that we're seeing on the news. Who is inspiring you the most right now? Wow, that's a, whew, that's a good... I probably should have done my homework on what that one question would be. <laughs> You know, my wife has told me, uh, has said consistently throughout this uh, pandemic that um, crises like this typically bring out the best or the worst in people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that has been so inspiring to me is how everyone in our system, from our employees to our farmers to our customers, right? Everyone has, I think, shown the very best of themselves. Um, mm-hmm. You know, at a time, for example, when many of our employees, I'm told, um, could have made more money taking advantage of COVID-era unemployment benefits, they instead chose 
to show up um, with even a lower absentee rate than before COVID and have done that consistently since mid-March. Um, you know, our customers have responded with, you know, flexibility and appreciation for our ability to, our, and our commitment to get them as much of their orders as we can every week right. and obviously with no change to prices. Our board members, and our, our board is uh, primarily uh, made up of, um, uh, you know, sustainability and uh, impact uh, in focused investors. And, uh, and all they want to know is how they can be helpful and support us in doing the right thing. And so I just, um, I'm inspired by the people I get to work with every day across our system and the way that they've stepped up to do their very best in this trying time. That's great. That's great. And uh, uh, that's a response that I hear a lot and, and one that I also feel. I'm so grateful. We're a very small team at Food Tank, as, as most folks know, but I'm so inspired by all the young people I get to work with because they're they're coming up with new ideas. They're thinking about things in very different ways than I do. And it just, it's, it is really inspiring and they push back. And, and that's kind of what we all need during this time is a little pushback and a reminder that, you know, we're not the smartest people in the room that, you know, it's, it's the, uh, the young folks who are really going to change how things, things um, work and how things go forward. So I, I am continually inspired by my staff. Um, Russell, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. A reminder that this episode will also appear on our uh, podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nierenberg. And I hope everyone will join me on my next episode when I'll be talking to Rebecca Ayer from Project Heal. Thanks again, Russell. Please stay well. Thanks, Danny. You too. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nierenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system. 